Hey guys, welcome back to another episode of the All Things Strength and Wellness Podcast. I'm your host, Robbie Burke, and we are brought to you by upmentorship.com, one of the top strength and conditioning resources available online today. This episode's guest is strength and conditioning coach Daniel Martinez. Daniel is a strength and conditioning coach who is located in San Antonio, Texas, where he is involved in the development of a number of athletes across multiple sports, but particularly in volleyball. Daniel is currently completing his master's in strength and conditioning at Edith Cowan University in Australia. On this episode, Daniel and I discussed many topics, including Daniel's background and influences, his overall thoughts on the training process, Daniel's thoughts on the reactive strength index and training to develop elasticity, Daniel's thoughts on technology within the strength and conditioning profession, mistakes and lessons Daniel has learned so far in his career, advices to all coaches, and who would Daniel invite to dinner? And we discussed many other topics throughout the show. This was a really great episode, guys, and I hope you really enjoy it. Okay, Coach Danny Martinez, it is an absolute pleasure and an honor to have you come on to my podcast. Uh, just for the listeners who wouldn't be too familiar or who may not be too familiar who you are, Daniel, just uh, fill us in on your background. Yeah, thanks for having me, Robbie. Uh, I'm uh, from San Antonio, Texas, and I've been a strength and conditioning coach uh, for several years now. I think it's uh, uh, interesting how my career's evolved. Like, I started out as a personal trainer when I was 20 years old and knew absolutely nothing and then evolved, uh, got involved in volleyball pretty early on and then became a club director and club owner and then basically, you know, was pretty successful at both of those things but continued to just kind of try to get a, a more control over the direction of my career so kind of withdrew myself from that process, uh, changed, that was probably about 10 years into coaching and training at that point and then pulled myself back, became a dad and husband, uh, focused more on strength and conditioning over the past six years specifically and uh, entered the, the graduate program at Edith Cowan University where I'm completing that in the next uh, the next six, seven months, which has been absolutely fantastic for me. And uh, everything else from there, I think, is just kind of like a, a connections and network, you know, like lots of great people that have influenced me. And that's been, uh, I think, really uh, positive in bringing me to where I am now. Yeah, definitely. Well, we'll talk about Edith Cowan later. I'm very interested to hear how, how you found the, the master's program there. It looks like you, you had a, a ball of a time when you were in Australia. So yeah. I'm interested to get into that. Uh, Daniel, the question I ask everyone who comes onto the podcast is the, about their influences. So who would you say have been the biggest influences on you, both as a coach and as a person? You know, it's funny to, to think back on that. Like early on, like I definitely had high school coaches that uh, one high school coach specifically was Gary Green, who was a former NFL player was my track coach when I played football he was briefly my one of my football coaches but uh he really influenced me in in a way that made me want to have an effect beyond what I think sometimes we we think of as a measurable in our field uh and that's weighed on me pretty heavily that I want to have that kind of influence on young people and be able to make that kind of a difference in their lives uh that's one thing I think just as as a brief aside is a lot of times I, I tell people is, you know, there were times where I struggled. Like I actually started out at University of Texas at San Antonio as a track and field athlete. And uh, at the times at which I was struggling there prior to becoming a personal trainer, uh, there were times where I, within that struggle, like I would tell people like, uh, 
you know, when, when coaches that cared about me like that, like you have to be willing to tell the truth because at that point, every time Coach Green would ask me, oh, how's everything going? How's college? I'd be like, oh, it's great. When really I was, I was struggling with finding, uh, finding what the correct trajectory was for me, how to, mm-hmm. how to really, you know, do great work, how to be a good athlete, how to put all that together. And it obviously it's kind of a, uh, taking shape from there. But that was, that was definitely something that, you know, when, when people ask you how you're doing, be honest and let allow the people that care about you to help you. Uh, what about from a, a, a more of a um, personal level? I know, I know, well, I know he was the personal level too, but anyone else from a coaching or, or even more sort of outside of coaching level? Or? Yeah, no, I, I think on a coaching level, uh, well, pr- pretty early on, I would say, and this is funny too, is like with the kind of the internet age, like Coach, uh, Coach Michael Boyle was like actually really huge early on. And it's funny because as you track things back like that, like for myself and people like Joe Bonnier, who I, I know has a very similar story about reading like a Mark Verstegen article about athletes' performance in uh, Sports mm-hmm. Illustrated. And it's so funny because I think there's got to be a lot of people who are influenced in that. Like right when you're just like yearning for information like that, there was very little available. And really there was very little to the private industry at that point or, uh, in terms of what we could all kind of, you know, get a, get a look into. And then I pretty much emailed Coach Boyle and created a relationship early on primarily because he emailed me back immediately and so for people like myself that uh became a part of his community uh that was a really powerful uh powerful shift for for myself and others uh and he's 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 continued to be influential like at every step really whenever i communicate with him if i need help with something i call coach Boyle up or email him and he's he's continued to to influence me in that way yeah, yeah. Well, obviously, I'm biased as well because I've obviously worked at NBSC and, and and interned, so and I'm good friends with Mike. So he's yeah, he's obviously been a big influence on me as well in terms of mentoring. Um, that next question I want to ask you is just maybe for the listeners. And I love I love asking coaches this is like, and it's such a broad question that you know the answer could go on for probably hours. But when I talk about training principles or training philosophies or your big rocks, like if we just set if we just sat down, me and you at a table. You know, I don't drink coffee, I drink water, but uh, whatever, if we were just sitting down at a table, just, you know, just discussing, just talking everything about training, say there was a big whiteboard in the room, and I said to you, you know, tell me, what is your philosophy on training, or what are your training principles, or what, what, like, what is your thought process on training when it comes to athletic development? I, I, I think it's uh, the interaction between process and outcome, like how do you get, like how do you figure out who the person that you're dealing with, like what they really need, who they are, like, you know, that comes back to something that Matt Jordan says a lot in terms of measuring what matters Mm -hmm. is you have to start out with knowing who that person is to really understand how to effectively influence them to find out how to get their best effort. And a lot of that involves, you know, emotional intelligence and other things that you've got to be able to get really dialed in on. Uh, Otherwise, you don't really know what their best effort really is, especially when you're working with with athletes in a lot of my population, which is, you know, high school club level athletes, uh, and even collegiately to a certain extent, you know, the, the, the NCAA program that I work with right now is a D3, and as an extension of that, like, it's very academically focused, so for a lot of kids, they have very short training histories, and if you can't make a connection quickly that lets them know that, you know, you care, then, uh, figuring out how to get them to push themselves in that way in that environment is is is, that's probably the challenge um as far as training principles themselves dan path specifically has like heavily influenced my thinking you know the whole micro dictates macro in terms of the micro cycle really being like key because to me it was always like you know if i 
can't find a way to get a maximum amount of work out of this, you know, training day, training week, and how that influences things from here, then, you know, planning so far out while not representing their best effort from week to week and day to day is just like, it's, you know, uh, I use the example of a training target. Like uh, if, you, if you created a, a triangle, you know, three different training targets, and even if you set that up as, in terms of optimal outcome, uh, as far as, you know, what, you know, let's say you're nailing your target on like certain, you know, uh, skills and abilities, like if power is a target, strength is a target, speed is a target. Mm. If you're off target on each one of those, it drastically misshapens the, the, how your triangle looks. Yeah. And so I always called it the funny angle triangle because it starts out, everybody has this elegance to the display, right? Like you've got your, uh, you know, your periodization plans and all these things. But if you look at how, it, how the outcome is affected, it really is a nasty looking thing sometimes because we don't come anywhere close to executing what our vision was for things. Yeah, it's uh, I've I've been conversing a lot lately with John Kiley. I don't know if you've seen any of his work. Uh, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Kiley's, uh... So uh, and I was with a seminar with him lately himself. And Martin uh, Bingeser put on a seminar here in Limerick in Ireland, and you know, so uh, John obviously spoke uh, a lot about you know planning and periodization and how a lot of these you know periodization models they have been seen as very scientifically valid. But you know, he was kind of saying when you look at the the science behind them it's actually quite shaky and there isn't actually a lot of foundation there now like what happens is then you get these two two camps people are saying oh kylie says there's no need to plan or program and that's not what he says he's like right. you know you do need a plan you do if he's like if you want to call it periodization okay call it periodization whatever he's like you do need a plan but you also need to realize that you cannot turn around and say this is the exact outcome i'm going to get if we do this exact plan because humans are just they're just too dynamic they're a dynamic biological system and there's so many factors that interact with uh with us on a day-to-day basis that are going to dictate the uh the end result and um, throughout the training process so you know and, and then like you know he also gets into areas like epigenetics and you know, gene expression and how all these factors can dictate the actual genetic expression we get from our training so yeah J- john's been a huge influence lately as well and it's it's not so much that what he's saying to me was groundbreaking it's like he's saying stuff that i've been thinking for the last few years in probably a more academic or elegant way so it's just uh yeah, it's 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 funny you just went straight away to emotional intelligence instead of being well, you know, specificity and overload right. and blah blah blah. It's like, well, you know, if you don't kind of know who's in front of you, it, it isn't as clear cut as that, you know. So that was very, very good. Um Yeah, I I, I think uh extending on that, there's the so um the Dave Snowden stuff is uh that we talked about briefly before oh, yeah, we jumped yeah. on this is uh Definitely get into that, yeah. you know, uh the Kinevian framework I think is something that, that really ties into this. There's also an author named Clayton Christensen who has he extent he discusses, you know, deliberate versus emergent strategies. And you know, emergence is essentially what you're not planning for. It's something that kind of evolves like from your landscape. Mm. Uh where with deliberate strategy is something so for me, like I always say, like, you know, strength is something that definitely allows you to be very deliberate and it's you know, m- most of us would say is fairly easy to achieve because even yeah. with slow adapters and slow, uh, you know, whatever you call them, slow gainers, like people who are slow to adapt in that sense, they're still going to adapt. I mean, there's like, I- I've never seen anyone not get stronger, especially yeah. in their early stages, but with other abilities and how you, how you integrate other, uh, biomotor abilities in development, like to me, it all points to timelines in terms of like, if you don't have an accurate view of what someone's timeline is for their development, then 
you're really just scratching the surface of what you're going to be able to do. Uh, yeah, yeah. At the same time, you get into a lot of that where many of us misrepresent what a lot of the training period is. Like for me with, with D3 and even a lot of my uh, high school and club population, you know, if I'm training kids twice a week, I'm feeling pretty good about how things are going, but that's not a full-time athlete and you really can't, you know, apply, you know, periodization properly in that kind of framework. So if I said, yeah, Hey, you know, we use vertical integration, that would be a great thing to, to, to discuss, but am I really doing that? Or is that, is that watered down because I can't really spend enough time with those qualities to really influence development to the way that that kind of thing is going to make a difference. You know, it's the same thing with uh, how we're looking at a recovery process right now and how things like cryotherapy and, you know, uh, antioxidant supplementation can in, can interfere with adaptation. It's like, well, all the research on that is over one or two days of training. So it's like, you know, if you're not really giving a full-time view of something like that, you can't really say it's limiting adaptation because sometimes the only way that you're going to be able to really maximize adaptation if you're training five days a week is if you're actually influencing recovery to a greater extent. You know, it's like as you have an increase in the, uh, in the, in the output, you have to have an increase in something that's going to improve your recovery uh, reserve and uh, it's going to allow you to, to, to keep that kind of work up at a high quality. And that would point to, you know, abs- the absolute necessity of, of improved recovery work. Yeah, I love I love how you mentioned this this idea of timelines. You know, I suppose another way of saying it is is a context. You know, so you know, yeah. I, I think uh, I suppose like I'm reading a lot of I'm reading a lot of mindset philosophy books. I'm actually reading Zen and the, the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance by Robert Piercy. Oh, yeah, it's good, isn't it? Yeah, and just you know, again, going back to this sort of classical idea of you know classical versus romantic mindsets, left brain brain versus right brain, and I suppose most of us in the Western world have kind of been whether consciously or subconsciously probably more subconsciously you know we just have been surrounded in a world that's more left brain and analytical and wants to put things in boxes and you can see that then bleeding into our like the the field that we're in which is you know strength conditioning athletic development physical preparation whatever term you want to put on it but that like we're always trying to look at these things in a sort of microscopic microscopic way instead of stepping back and as you said looking at things in this timeline looking at these things from the 30,000 square foot looking at these things more in a co- in, in context you know like the idea there you said with the chi- with the chi- cryotherapy and the antioxidants you're like well i mean it, it's only on two days i mean it's it's at such a micro level can we uh-huh. ca- can we really then uh, uh, ascertain that this is exactly what's going to happen at a more macro level, you know. And I, I actually love the way you mentioned around about Dan Faf mi- microcycle, microcycle. That was one of the things I loved in the article series by Matt and Stuart McMullins. It was like, yeah, that's how I feel too. You know, how can you put out these great annual plans or macro cycles if you can't even control what's going on a week to week basis? Which you can't. And and that's the thing Kylie's saying. Kylie's saying you just can't. You have to know. Like Kylie's thing is we don't know. We actually just don't know. Like you know. Yeah. So, yeah. But, yeah. And that by definition is this. Uh, within the Canavian framework, there's basically there's ordered and unordered, ordered, you know, realms, if you will. Yeah. Ordered, ordered being simple and complicated. There, uh, there's also a great discussion about the Canavian, or not the Canavian framework, but on this on complicated and complex. So anyway, simple and complicated are in order, and then complex and chaos are in unordered, and they each have different goals. You have to mm. manage those systems differently. And complex is essentially emergent phenomenon, so you can't manage that from a perspective because it's not mechanistic you can't look backwards at it so that's one of the things there's also something called a scrum methodology that's really an effective like uh, management tool for for projects uh, in a lot of it's used in like uh, what like information 
automation technology and things like that that use the, the Scrum framework. But essentially, they have these things called sprints, which are essentially microcycles. And you're like, your goal is to create a certain level of development, like something that's completely formed, like within that short sprint. So you know, essentially, a microcycle, like we're talking about. But when you have that sprint, what happens is, is once you create, once you have that sprint, if you haven't really well, haven't thought it out well then at the end of that, there's no going backwards. It's not like the sprint is done. It's permanently changed your, your setting and your environment. So, you know, that's when it's the, there's still an interaction and there's still a, a, a need for annual planning and for having goals for mm-hmm. short-term, medium, long-term, because those things are going to influence each other. Uh, but you have to recognize that sometimes, you know, what you're evaluating, just because you, you have an effect doesn't mean you can trace that back to an immediate cause, and there is this, this inherent complexity to our biology, so that's something that you have to definitely be willing to give consideration. Again, like, to me, the ultimate timeline you have to think about is, you know, someone's development from, like, let's say, 10, 12 years old through the end of their career, because yeah. that's one of those things, yeah. when I always think about that, I always think it's really perfect in how uh, capable an athlete's development what we should be able to represent within that that's something that you know in terms when you look at like the window for speed development and then how strength can kind of enhance that, that development over time like I'm like that's that's 100% the way that, that I think about it and that's something that you'll find in uh, uh, Boo Schecksneider's work and then as well as Landon Evans who uh, I actually just ended up just this weekend I was at a, a clinic at the University of Texas and we had a discussion on uh, Zen and Art of Motorcycle Maintenance because I, I've really struggled to think. I'm like, I'm like, in terms of like, you know, some of the Tabata research, which at this point is very bastardized, but you know, some of the the max aerobic speed is an extension. I'm, I, I've struggled with. I'm like, you know, there there are adaptations that come from that. And then when I asked Landon about it, who's who's an absolute just uh, genius with with uh, this kinds of stuff. When I asked uh, Landon about it, you know, it essentially came down to a question of quality. Like, you know, what so if you did, if you did generate some adaptation, what does that look like? You know, what, what does it look like? And then are you able to extend that? Or is the work itself so brutal and demanding that you end up, at, you know, you're kind of at the end of the road in terms of where you're going. There's there's no direction from there because you've pretty much buried the, the athlete under that kind of, uh, under that kind of load. It's, uh, I kind of laugh there because I'm just at the part of the book in Zen where he's talking about quality. <laughs> yeah, yeah the question, it's, it is. It's, it's a brilliant discussion on it like that. There's another book called The Happiness Hypothesis where they have a discussion on rational versus emotional. And that to me is, you know, when you talk about gut feelings and your action of like our, uh, the psycho-neuroimmunological framework, like how all of those things are connected and how they interact, whether you're talking about injury and return to play or whether you're talking about maximizing adaptation. It's like when someone says they have a gut feeling, like that's deeply entrenched in our biology. And that's definitely something that we want to... Uh, to give consideration to the rider and elephant analogy i've always kind of used this parallel to being like the the romantic and rational uh framework from uh from robert piercing uh where the rider is essentially the rational part of our minds and then the emotional is the elephant so it's like if you don't if you don't contain the elephant then that side is really going to take you can it can take you completely off course so the the goal is 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 to understand that to really take advantage of of what we're able to uh, develop best from that. Like uh, uh, the rider is essentially still always going to do best with uh, the power of the elephant, but that's 
something that, you know, if the elephant decides to go off course, and that's not something you can control, and that's, again, is, is points to the complexity of our biology. Sometimes we, we have less control than we think. Mm, absolutely. So, Dan, you're, you're currently finishing up your master's, they said, in, in Eda Cowan. Can you maybe discuss, like, uh, you know, uh, what made you want to do it? It is a master's you're doing, yes? It is a master's, yeah, So, yes, can you maybe discuss uh, what, what drove you to do a master's, why Eda Cowan, and maybe your experience up to date? Yeah, you know, uh, I think Dan, Dr. Dan Baker really popped into everybody's, uh, into a worldview recently. Uh, a lot of his work, for whatever reason, I don't really know what, 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 what happened there. Obviously, he's been doing great work since the, you know, since forever, I think since the late, or late 80s, early 90s, when, since he's been with uh, the Brisbane Broncos. Mm-hmm. But I jumped on a, a Skype call with him, actually, a, a consultation with him, I guess, a little bit over a year, maybe a year and a half ago. It was just, yeah, it was probably two years actually at this point. What what I had done uh, this squat every day case study that was just ridiculous, and uh, in going through that, I had some interesting velocity based data, and and he had popped in my mind as someone who I thought, okay, here's an Australian guy who's done you know world class work for years, and I was interested in picking his brain on some things that had always. Uh, puzzled me in terms of relationships between peak velocity and uh, average velocity. So I jumped on a Skype call and mentioned that I'd been interested in the ECU program, and he was really encouraging in that, and uh, uh, in consideration of that, but also uh, of Nick Winkleman having uh, completed the program previously, and then uh, those things did weigh heavily on my mind, that I did know that uh, Australia had definitely represented uh, excellence in sports science for a long time, and it was something that I was interested in capturing, you know, what was what was special about that environment and their education there, uh, and ECU's definitely been a positive step in that regard. You consider the faculty in place there, uh, including, you know, Dr. Jeremy Shepard, Dr. Rob Newton being really the head of the, the exercise science, Dr. Dr. Uh, Greg Hoff, who's also president of the National Strength and Conditioning Association and has roots directly to Dr. Mike Stone, and you have Dr. Sophia, Dr. Sophia Nymphius, who's been absolutely outstanding in like every way as uh, someone who, who I'm able to have some dialogue with and someone who's just world class. Uh, and then uh, when you mentioned the, me having a great time over there, having the chance to, to see people like uh, Jason Weber, who's uh, Old Bull Fitness is how a lot of people would recognize mm-hmm. Jason. And then Dr. Mike Newton, Dr. Chris Abbas, who did a, a presentation for us on a, a, a environmental stress. You know, these are all people who you look back to the what the high performance training for sports book from uh, from David Joyce and I believe it was Dan Lewenden. Yeah. Uh, uh, look back to that and when I when I go through the author's contribution, you know, there were probably I don't know somewhere around ten people from Edith Cowan specifically when that book came out, and uh, you know, all that stuff was just uh, it, it, it really weighed heavily on me that this was a a group of people that I wanted to influence me. Yeah, yeah, because I'm. Uh... I'm currently, you know, d- going to decide to do a master's now at St. Mary's in, in London, consider, yeah. but, but the more I'm kind of weighing it up, I've, I've looked at Eda Count too, and I know a lot of people have gone there, and I've only ever heard positive things of Eda Count, and then it's, you know, the, the faculty there is just amazing. I'm actually interviewing Dr. Half on Friday morning as well, so I'll be, oh, great. I'll be I'm really looking forward to that. So uh, can you maybe discuss your, your, your research in your master's, Dan, and, and, uh, or, and also what, what kind of currently is on your mind in terms of some questions that you'd like to answer or, or I suppose going back to Kylie we just will never know really any answers but what are certain areas that you would like to see if you could shine more of a light on if, if you if you can follow that question yeah uh, 
so to me, like the, the whole athlete monitoring discussion that is, is very prevalent is something that uh, I was able to, to do quite a bit of work on in my first semester uh, at ECU. And I, uh, I ended up doing a paper that's now been uh, uh, accepted by the Journal of Australian Strength and Conditioning cool. on a reactive strength index, reactive strength index modified, and flight time contraction time mm. as monitoring tools. That's good. Uh, yeah, and it, it was really great because to me those are complementary uh, tools that a lot of people don't give consideration for in terms of like, uh, you know, jumping as a quality, but how jumping itself can vary depending on, you know, the speed, uh, mm. the ground contact time, uh, you know, really the intent overall, and then the amount of variability, even within a single measure there, like especially if we look, look at reactive strength index modified and flight time contraction time, how people can alter that process to reflect fatigue and changes in fatigue so that they can maintain outputs. It's one of those things that points again to complexity that, you know, a lot of people were not, we're not we have no way outside of force plates or, and, you know, maybe some uh, 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 video analysis now that can really tease out the differences in that uh, where, you know, if you're just using a contact mat, you're, you're, you're missing out on uh, an incredible resource of information in terms of uh, uh, mechanistic effects. Um, just in, in terms of the reactive strength index, like a que I've asked Vern Gambetta this question actually yesterday. I interviewed Vern yesterday. I'm good, I, know Vern, I know Vern well. Um, like so with with the reactive strength index, Dan. Right. So this is just anytime I've looked it up as a as a objective testing criteria for elastic reactive strength. Now I know it's also used for monitoring, but in terms of just like getting some sort of data or information on someone's elastic reactive strength capabilities, they always come back with this. You know, two two hundred fifty milliseconds and under is a fast stress shortening cycle. And then, but that's kind of all it's left at. It's never like, well, the box is this height, and then it never seems to take into it never seems to take into consideration the athlete's body weight, because surely, you know, basic physics, a heavier load is a heavier individual is going to need more time to submit more force into the ground than somebody who's who's of a lighter weight. Now, you know, not, again, depending on their obviously elastic reactive strength and their, their genetics and the the series and parallel elastic components of their tissues and whatnot that that Franz Bosch talks about and whatnot. But but aside from that, like, do you know, like, is there any way, like, how can we tease that out to be a little more less vague, if you like? And then the second thing is, should there be or is there any relationship between reactive strength index, so kind of the, the drop jump test and someone's counter movement and non counter movement? Like, is there a, is there a ratio that should be there? in terms of overall development because some answers some people say i don't know i've looked into it but i haven't other people just say listen they're so completely different from a biomotor standpoint that there's no need to even think that there should be a relationship between them so i mean if any of that makes any sense or you want to give that a stab <laughs> uh yeah like to me it points to the like number one on the reactor strength index if you're talking about drop jumps versus depth jumps and how people you know essentially label those things as two dis two different movements where a drop jump would be more you know hands on hips fast ground contact yeah. time under 250 milliseconds where a depth jump would be uh more of a uh uh, you know, dropping from a box, but only with the intent of jumping as, as high, high as, as possible. And if that, you're going to have a change in the knee angles that you're going to use, the yeah. amount of ground contact time, because that will extend the time on the ground. Uh, but 
I've, I've seen uh, I've seen that work from Natalia Verkashansky. Like you know, she yeah. was saying that the death jump and the dock jump are not the same thing. But I suppose my my question with that is that uh, so the two hundred fifty milliseconds. But like, have you seen anything where they're like, well, it's from like it's a, from this box height or it's you know, and then there's nothing relative to body weight. Now, in fairness, Rob Panriello made a good point. Rob Panriello said that what he does is he gets a certain box height and he makes sure that the athlete stays at 250 milliseconds or less and he'll keep open the box height until they can't maintain that ground, ground contact anymore. So he says that takes away the, 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 the relative weight issue because he's like, just he's at the heavier guys, their baseline will be at a lower box height. The lighter guys will have a higher box height. And he says gotcha. that, that's their retest, like that's their baseline. He's like, I don't have normative data on it, but he's like, that's how he gets an objective baseline to retest against. So that's kind of what I, what I suppose with that. Yeah, I, I think, uh, yeah, because you, you'll have, when you when you have people looking for a certain outcome, that's always going to influence things. So that definitely is a good criteria is in terms of, like, uh, uh, standardizing some of your, your, your information in the beginning from the yeah. get-go. Uh, so, yeah, I can see that. You have the, the, you know, stretch load tolerance testing, which follows a similar process where you're essentially, you know, you're going to do a reactor strength index test, but you do progressive jump heights until somebody's jump back or until their reactor strength index actually jumps down, which some of that could involve if they have an increase in ground contact time, then you're losing the mechanism that you're looking for, yeah. that you're looking to adapt. So yeah. if that's happening, then it's one of those things like you, you, you've lost sight of what's important about, about that specific skill. Cause even if you're jumping from 60 centimeters, if your ground contact time extends and you're really developing a different quality. And again, I think everybody's uh, pretty well versed in, in, you know specificity in that regard in terms of if, if you need rapid ground contact times com- combined with the maximal jump height then you can't lose either one yeah yeah big time and then sorry i cut you off there have you thought of or seen anything in terms of you know this idea of like the like when you're jump profiling someone from a non-counter movement which is apparently supposed to look at start and acceleration strength and then counter movement looks at more explosive and then reactor index more last reactive now, first of all, I suppose that's very left brain analytical, putting things in boxes again, which you kind of spoke about is, is kind of a flawed way to look at things sometimes. Uh-huh. But is there anyone out there who's looking for like like a relationship between these? Like, should your reaction index be a certain percentage in terms of output in comparison to, let's say, your counter or non-counter movement jumps? Have you seen anything along those lines? You know, like I, I know with Kelly Baguette, he's like, you'll get guys who are more genetically wired to be more contractile absolute strength guys um you know so they're they're better at the non-counter or counter movement where they have time to you know enough time to some uh, to some uh, to, to accumulate the force to jump high but then when you bring them to a, a, de- a drop jump where they can only spend such a short time on the ground their force output really drops off and he's like you get the other guys who are very elastic and reactive they're great with reaction index, but they're, they're not great then from a contractile standpoint when it comes to like a non-counter encounter. And he basically just says you need to train what they're weak at. Now that that's in his ebook and it's not greatly referenced. Right? That's just more of an idea. But have you have you thought about any of that stuff before? Or seen anything or, or heard anything about it or what are your thoughts? Yeah, this no, that's that's a, it's a great question. It's something that to to me in a sport that I've spent a lot of time with, as I mentioned, is volleyball. volleyball is. Yeah. Uh, uh, rather than chasing one style in volleyball, it makes more sense to understand you want to ad- create adaptability and variability within a range, which points to developing both of those qualities. And so some of that is, again, is you have to give consideration to timeline because that's kind of a generic answer. It's like, well, you know, you want to look at what somebody's not good at. And it's like, well, if your timeline is 
is constrained, which is uh, one of the you know the primary ways it's going to limit adaptation, uh, then you have to figure out okay what's most important here, and that's so there's a difference between what's important uh, and what you feel is urgent. You know, like and you always have to do important things first. That's definitely like a guiding principle because uh, some of those things. Uh, Again, you may not be able to tease out mechanistically in terms of like how it's going to influence everything, but uh, it will definitely affect like you know everything that happens underneath of that umbrella. That's where sometimes strength as a dominant quality uh, is able to have that influence, and why people are always like, "Well, no, strength really does matter." You know, you do want to move your curve up and to the right, mm. but uh, because it does influence things from that perspective. Uh, so I, I would say like, you know, more long term, like strength influencing factors like that. But then you, you always have those complementary measures that uh, you have to adapt as well. Like so as you bring that up again, if you have people who become more contractile dominant, you also have to be careful to uh, to allow for time to to bring, you know, rate of force development, accelerator strength, explosive strength to to bring that up as well, because it's not something that just happens. There are people who, for perfectly good reasons, will will uh, adapt movement to reflect uh, that change in, you know, a single quality, and that doesn't necessarily always integrate, you know, fully. Yeah, big time, big time. Dan, a, a, a question I really want to get your take on too is, you know, obviously the last three, five, even ten years, but particularly, I suppose, the last three to five years, technology has boomed and sports science has boomed within the strength and conditioning profession. What are your current thoughts on technology? Uh, what, what are some of the maybe... The, the flaws you see with it what are some of the benefits and where do you see it going in the future yeah there's there's I mean there's a lot of interesting stuff on technologies and like uh, there's from uh, what's his Atul Gawande has a great quote in his book better where he basically says you know like we're not making remotely adequate efforts to use the technology we currently have and until that changes then you know new technology is not it's not going to have an effect if we're not doing the best with what we already have. Like there's stuff that's been in existence, you know, velocity based training has been around since the mid nineties. Uh, Dr. Dan Baker showed me like papers that he had from when I was still in high school, like where they'd been, you know, he'd been using velocity based training, uh, via linear position transducer to, uh, to essentially profile and develop, you know, specific ranges, uh, of, loading in order to influence in, in, in that case it was uh, on a, a world-class diver that he was working with but uh, so you know technology on that front it, it has a lot of appeal because it makes us feel like oh yeah this is what's been missing from my training but I know you're a, a Ralph, Ralph Waldo Emerson fan as well and mm. it was you know like you know we gain a watch and we lose the sun like that kind of thing that's uh, that's essentially the way that I look at it so it's like I think you're always going to have to be be aware of what your current environment is because that will change and how you interact with other professionals and you know you definitely don't want to lack competency in that regard but you know make sure you're doing the job that you're supposed to do well first which for strength and conditioning coaches it's very distracting to, to, to have to think about integrating more technology when you feel like you're not even able to do the job you were already supposed to do well first mm -hmm. because of constrained timelines and because less time that you get with athletes because the competition demands go up, you know, like that's something that, uh, uh most people right now, like almost never full-time train. Like there's, there's like, there's such a short window for that and we can't even get, uh, I don't know. It's, uh, to, that's kind of, kind of a completely separate discussion, but I would say, yeah, like, you know, uh, Clayton Christensen has an excellent, uh, amount of dialogue on this in his book how will you measure your life where he says you know like 
what's the job that you were hired for? Like you have to do that job well first before you think about doing other jobs. Because if you're not doing that job, then you could say, well, hey, I've got this great monitoring that we're doing right now. And they're like, well, are my athletes stronger? Like, are you the strength and conditioning coach? Have they gotten stronger? Or are you just telling me, though, well, you know, stress is why they're not getting stronger. Like, okay, is there anything you can do to make them stronger? Which mm. was, of course, your original job. Yeah, yeah, definitely, definitely, yeah, absolutely. Uh, a question I love, I love asking everyone that comes on to the show are, what would you say are some of the biggest mistakes you've made so far in your career and the biggest lessons you've taken away from them? Yeah, uh, so one was uh, I definitely had a, a more of an elitist attitude towards uh, development early in my career. Like I said, my, the, the name of my first coaching business was Elite Volleyball Performance, and I got rid of that name uh, probably about five or six years in. But uh, it's something to me that it told me nothing about the kind of environment that I wanted to, to operate and what kind of influence I wanted to, uh, to have on people. It was really just some similar to the technology discussion is just like uh, what kind of change am, am I able to make with these kids and, and how does the name of my business essentially like reflect that so basically I was trying to convince you know high school athletes of what it would take to be elite when I really needed to tell them you know what here's your job right now is to be a good high school athlete okay well what does that require you know and that's that's a very different thing so a lot of us like to talk about you know again technology and about uh, periodization and annual plans and all these things when you can't get a kid to show up to a workout consistently you know it's just like again in order to measure what matters and to influence what matters that you're measuring you have to really be able to scale down if you don't understand the why for the athlete and for the process uh, of physical preparation then you're never going to be able to to affect what and how you know you're not going to be able to 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 have the impact that you're looking to have. Um, that's in terms of streamlining and find, finding efficiency. There's a great quote or, from Steve Jobs where he's talking to a Nike exec and he tells him, he says, you guys do great stuff and you do crappy stuff. Get rid of the crappy stuff. You know, like it's it's really that. It's like you have to be able to do less better. That's, uh, that's something that uh, uh, I think we all have to take more responsibility. Like if, if you haven't done a good job with what you, what your current demands are, you know, trying to add on to that, it's, 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 it's ridiculous to try to try to extend what is, doesn't represent quality in your framework. Yeah, it's, it's funny, you, you mentioned, you know, the, the idea of getting the athlete to come twice a week, you know, and people are putting all these other things before, before the cart, because if you look at any of the top guys around, like, so, just Eric Helms comes to mind, like, with his pyramids, like, he has his priority pyramid for training, and his priority pyramid for nutrition and at the very mm-hmm. very at the very bottom where it kind of encircles the whole pyramid he's just like adherence <laughs> he's, yeah. you know he's just like you know I, I could talk all about you know so like with his, with his training one he's like you know you got volume and intensity and overload and you know you have all these uh, these certain variables uh, in this hierarchical structure but he's like if the athlete isn't adhering to any of this or isn't showing up when they're meant to show up I mean you know again it goes back to this idea of emotional intelligence and where this person's at so yeah, definitely. I think I think a lot of us probably listen. I know myself have been guilty of that too. You know, again, kind of going back to that, we've been more sort of we're in more of a culture. It, it, there's actually a very famous author. I don't know if you ever read any of his stuff called Joseph Shilton Pierce. He's he's one of my favorite authors, and he talks about this concept of enculturation and the fact that you know we're kind of taken from that more right brain sort of emotional animal sort of mindset when we're kids to being enculturated by 
the world and the environment and more being more left brain and i think you know we we're, we're starting to realize you know we need a little more of this emotional intelligence again to to fully fully get our athletes to to where we want them to be yeah that's a that's a great point there's a um a lot of times in, in, in culture, you know, you're essentially, there, there's a co-evolution that occurs where culture can influence biology oh, yeah. within two within two generations. Is it's It almost completely changes our biology. So I'm very, I'm curious to see how things continue to evolve because I know that there's certainly been, for most of us, what represents degradation. Like the idea that I myself meditate using my iPhone is just like, is, it seems like the, the biggest contradiction to me, but yeah, you know, what what an oxymoron. I think people that, that are able to help us the most, like for instance, when I was in Perth for the, for the practicum for ECU, uh, one of the best experiences I had was being able to go in the environment at Western Australia Institute of Sport and at the Western Force Super Rugby program there. And in pretty much every environment, I always, you know, similar to what you're saying in terms of, you know, um, asking me about mistakes I made and whatnot, uh, I always... When I'm meeting with people, a lot of times I'll ask them this question, I'll, I'll, or I'll, I'll bring up a story from the talent code, from the from the end of the talent code, where there's an American car exec who goes to work for Toyota, and he goes and he's really excited about talking about the great stuff that they've been doing and all this, uh, these fantastic projects his team's working on and how great they're doing. And the CEO stops him and says, you know, this is all great, but if you could bring your problems to these meetings, we could all get better together. And in most environments, that's how I, I, I bring things up. I'm saying, so what are your problems in this environment? And a lot of times that, that makes people be more honest in representing, you know, what they're actually doing and what they're not able to do currently. And uh, I asked, I did the same thing in, uh, in at, at WACE in Perth and uh, at the Western Force. And Charlie Higgins there is the, he's the lead athletic development coach for, uh, for the Western Force. And he was the only person, I never even got the chance to, to ask the question because he immediately started talking to us about the problems they have. I mean, they're the most traveled professional sports team, I believe, in the world because Perth is just so isolated, uh, especially in consideration of their international travel. Uh, but he talked and, and really inspired me in, in how well he was able to represent those challenges uh, that they face. And that's something that I think that, that we have to be more responsible in, in, in representing to others. It's like we could all talk about, you know, the technology that we're using and, you know, using force and using whatever it is that uh, that we're able to, but you know, like, are we really having the influence on those factors? You know, like, because uh, when we're saying that, you know, flight time, contraction time, and it, it, for instance, is being reduced, it's like, well, you know, like, have we gotten our athletes from an adherence standpoint to take responsibility for their role in those things? And if we haven't, then you know, we're kind of we're shooting blind. Great stuff, Dan. You, you, from what I've seen and you can correct me on this if I'm wrong, but you, you seem to be a big proponent of Olympic lifting and the Olympic lifts. Can you maybe speak to how you, you, your love of Olympic lifting came about and how you how you implement that with your athletes? And, and you know, is it something that you would always implement or, again, does it go back to timeline with certain athletes? And, you know, maybe just touch on that. Yeah, that's one of those things that there is. There, there's, there's a simplicity and there's a complexity to it. Uh, in that, to me, it, it's always silly because I always think Olympic lifting really does tie in, tie well into most athletic development processes. Mm -hmm. And for instance, if you use an FMS framework, I'm like all of the things from a corrective standpoint that you're looking to develop line up really well with being able to integrate weightlifting practice because it's like one of those things. It's like if you haven't cleared shoulder mobility, and people are like, oh, you know, people are not people are not flexible enough in the shoulders, and I'm like, but at the 
same time, like you screen them and you're working on improving that. And then ideally you did improve that over, you know, over whatever your timeline was. So now you should be able to integrate what, like, is the shoulder mobility still an issue or is that an excuse? You know, like in my mind, I think that people don't, don't represent that honestly all the time is it's like when you consider what this like the overhead squat for instance that was like my short-minded view overall was like yeah yeah it's like a snatch position like okay so like you if you can clear an overhead squat then you can snatch properly right obviously it's not that simple because uh, there is there's the relationship with mobility and stability uh, motor control if you will uh, and you know that that I think is 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 something that given an appropriate timeline, Olympic weightlifting does line up really well in terms of transfer and integration of strength and speed uh, in such a way that, you know, it, it's, it's, it economizes the process at times. Like, so for me, I always tell people, you know, like in terms of max strength, like there are periods where I think max strength should abs- absolutely be a premium for us, but there's a lot of times where maintaining that over long competitive periods requires something like Olympic weightlifting. Like you can manage... Uh, and maintain a high amount of maximal strength with power, you know, power loads, you know, traditional like 80% range kind of uh, mm. uh, loads, you can maintain a high percentage of maximum strength uh, while doing very little of it while training at, you know, such intensities. So I, I think that that's something that's uh, critical to keep in mind, uh, especially if you consider with my population with volleyball athletes uh, and trying to minimize jump training loads, you talk about compromise in terms of loading ranges, you know, like, like, like I like jump squats as well, like trap bar squat jumps, things like that. Uh, but uh, Olympic weightlifting in terms of intent, I think it's, it's, it's really hard to do it properly and not have it aligned with, you know, your goals for the rest of your program. Uh, like I said, uh, in terms of the interaction of uh, efficiency and effectiveness. Yeah, I, I think this is the, the big thing is that it comes down to the coach too of the Olympic lift. If you have someone who's very competent, has good progressions in place, you know, and understands its position in the whole context of the training, uh, the training program and the development of the athlete. Um, yeah, I de- de- definitely, definitely think that, that, as you said, they tie in very well with overall athletic development abilities. Um, I, I, I suppose that the, it's just that people see those horror videos of the, the college football star shape, you know, sort of, you know, you see yeah. those, yeah, and it kind of throws people off. But again, it comes back again to the coach, the timeline with the athlete. But I definitely agree. And interestingly, you brought up the point that these these more sort of velocity based loads or these sub maximal loads that are moved fast, you know, can maintain these maximal strength outputs. It's very interesting because I suppose you know you've read triphasic training, no doubt. And when Cal Dees, uh-huh. when Cal Dees talked about that, even it was like twenty five to fifty five percent loads in these hockey players he did for a number of weeks. And he's like their maximal strength maintained, and in a few cases it actually increased. You know, so it's it's funny. I've had this conversation with James Smith before. You know that you know we always like you know strength is the foundation, and strength is this important. And then you're kind of like I've seen people who do very little strength work, like long jumpers and all this, and or or gym gymnasts, and I bring them into the gym and their strengths off the table. So there's other mechanisms that we just that people just don't want to talk about because it's a nice little box to say you know to get maximally strong you have these percentages and it's the foundation for strength and power and it's like i know people that don't do any strength work and they're strong as shit when it comes to absolute strength and they're obviously getting that through different avenues so it's just interesting you brought up the way that the maintenance of strength through these loads you know so that, that yeah interesting. That, for, for me that's like a, if you look at prue cormier's research and unfortunately she she left edith cowan i believe she's an australian catholic now but uh prue cormier has some fantastic work on uh 
general and spe- specific adaptations and strength, uh, where essentially, you know, beginners have a really general, general response yeah. to power training loads. And as you, as you, uh, age and develop continually, then you have more of a velocity specific adaptation. So then, you know, you're t- looking at more specific ranges because that's something that gets very confusing in the literature. If you look at it, even for me, I'm like, I, I don't, I don't concern myself too much with, uh, with, what the literature says so much as, uh, again, looking for, back to Robert Piercek, looking for quality, you know, mm-hmm. like you're looking for what, what does it actually look like? I have a friend named Aaron Davis in uh, Austin, Texas, who, uh, he has the Moxie monitor for, so it measures most, well, it, it, it I, I believe it's infrared spectro- spectrometry, uh, but uh, uh, him and Landon Evans are both using the Moxie device, and when he first wrote about using it, and looking at the different adaptations and uh, looking at the way that athletes uh, responded from a muscle oxygen standpoint to bodyweight circuits and to tempo training and how those were at time very divergent adaptations. Uh, at first, I was pretty overwhelmed with like with what he was able to, to get from, uh, from the Moxie device. And then, I, you know, him and I had a conversation. I said, you know, the more I thought about it, I was thinking to myself, from a quality perspective, what did that look like? Like, what did that tempo session look like? Because that was the one where he, he saw a really great response. And then on the body weight circuits, uh, he saw, uh, I wouldn't say, I wouldn't say negative change, but I'd say it was, it, it was not the kind of load aerobically that you would have liked for, for that type of workout. And I was like, well, you know, the guy probably had some mobility restrictions, maybe some motor control issues to where that work, you know, maybe there's breath holding and a lot of postures mm-hmm. that he should have been, you know, so you've got to think about what that actually looked like. And, uh, in Matt Jordan's, uh, uh, research on the, the kinetic impulse asymmetry index, I, I thought to myself also, I was like, man, this is really fantastic stuff in terms of 15, per, 15%, 20%, 10%, and, you know, where somebody's going to be, have a heightened injury risk. And then, you know, when you look at some of his visuals, uh, uh, which he shared in a, uh, in a, a presentation he did recently, when you look at them and you look at the landing positions that they ran, I'm like, you know, any coach who's willing to look at that and be disciplined as a coach is going to see, you can eyeball test that yeah, and you can yeah. see those things. Like, yeah, you're going to be able to, to reinforce that with your force plate measures, but the idea that you're going to miss that 20% difference is, is uh, I don't know, I, I, I don't think that that's realistic. I think that, and not, and, you know, I, I think Matt Jordan's work is obvious. I, I think he's using those in a complementary way. Like, I think that's, it's fantastic what he's been able to do and, and show us and how, how those changes, uh, can impact somebody's injury risk, but at the same time, I'm like, you know, if you're somebody who doesn't have those tools, you still have the ability to, to run a good program and have good process. You just have to be willing to be really rigid in what what jumping's supposed to look like and what it's not supposed to look like, and what landing's supposed to look like and what it's not supposed to look like. Yeah, big time, big time. Dan, just wrapping up here, uh, just a few more questions. In terms of your your top resources, and like this could be anything, could be books, DVDs, seminars. Uh, any online resource website and it doesn't obviously have to be just limited to physical preparation or the strength and condition profession it could be anything what would your top resource be to everyone listening mm, uh, gosh I would almost say like from a networking standpoint this is something that I would lead with because that's something that in terms of pointing me in the 
the direction that I'm in now has been really critical. Central Virginia Sports Performance Seminar, mm-hmm. like I would say, if you can look, that's where you know you'll you'll be able to find some of the lectures from Natalia Verkashansky, and then people who've influenced me more recently, Landon Evans, uh, Eric Corum, who's now the director of sports science for uh, for the Houston Texans. He was previously at University of Kentucky as a high performance coach there. Uh, underneath of him was Dr. Christopher Morris, who's now at University of Texas as their applied sports science sports scientist. Uh, he had a, his dissertation at University of Kentucky was called fluid periodization, or uh, that's what I'll, I'll refer to it as, as. But essentially, a lot of what we're talking about here, so uh, fluid periodization is being like how do you adjust in a more fluid way to the adaptation process. Uh, anyway, uh, CVSPS has been really uh, hev- heavily influential on me, and there's uh, you'll be able to track down. I, I believe that uh, Jay DeMeo is the person from uh, Richmond University there. Yeah, I've had Jay on and, the podcast before. Yeah, Jay, I mean, like, in terms of, you know, like, year after year putting out a great seminar and, and really, you know, having great people. I met Joel Smith there, who um, that's something that, as another aside, like, I went out to see Joel on my way to Australia and got to watch him him run training in the morning and water polo there like I, w- I would say that you know culturally what they had going on at Cal that was that was pound for pound as as heavy and as good quality training as what I saw at uh, Western Australia Institute of Sport and in terms of uh, from a cultural perspective I think that you know they, they were better they were better at Cal so that's one of those things you know like uh, you have to be willing to you know just because you know I was in Australia watching a weight training session it doesn't mean that it's inherently better you know you just got to mm-hmm. seek out you know good people that you can learn from and be influenced by and that could be at university level or high school level professional level it's it's uh, you just got to willing to be discriminating in that regard it's funny you bring that up because so often people always say to me oh you've been in America you know you, you've worked at Boyles you've traveled around and seen a lot of facilities and you're like the Americans are way ahead of us here in Ireland and I always, I'm always like, no, they're not. And like everyone's like, yeah. what? And I'm like, there's coaches in Ireland who are as every bit as good as any coach anywhere else in the world that I've ever met. It's just that in America, you've got more money in your universities, better uh, infrastructures, better facilities. You have a way bigger genetic pool than we have here in Ireland. Like, I mean, you've got over 300 million people living in that country. We've got four. Right. We've got four million. Uh, like, like the uh, it was funny. I kept saying this. The, the staff members at Boyle at Boyles, like based off some of their like testing criteria, like their jump profiles, they would be like almost our Olympians. <laughs> and yet, yeah. and yet in America, they're just average Joes. Like your average Joes are our, our Olympians. So it's just a bigger genetic pool. But in terms of like actual quality coaching and quality coaches, like um, they're every bit as good, and uh, coaching's every bit as good as there in Ireland. So. But because it's, it's funny you say you know you traveled to Australia and yet one of the best you saw was a guy who's you know Joel Joel Smith like you know who's not too far away from you, um, and I will say one thing one of the best coaches I saw while I was up uh, in America last summer was uh, Devin McConnell, at at, yeah, at, Lowell, at Lowell Hockey his his uh, culture there was just incredible it was amazing, so yeah uh, that's and, and and yeah and that's it it's it's to to me that's like like I always look at coaching as modeling you know like you're trying to model behavior and you've got to find people that are doing a good job of that that's something that you know Devin does a fantastic job Nate Brookerson is a friend of mine he's at NC State uh Walter Norton is a uh he has a facility in Boston as well used to be associated with uh with Coach Boyle uh Charlie Weingroff Patrick Ward people like that like are people that you know like they weigh heavily on me and how willing they are to have you know excellence and quality as their standard you know like that's there's a 
he's probably one of the best coaches in the world, like any sport, any criteria, you know, like, uh, and they have a, a, a sign in their locker room there that says excellence is the only agenda. And to me, that's, that's always been a fantastic way of looking at things because I always think we can have our biases and we can have our agendas as strength coaches, but if we use excellence as what, you know, constrains what, how we're able to do our job, then that's something that it's only going to lead us to a good place and it'll allow us to compromise with other professionals as well uh, in terms of how we integrate our work with the sport coach and with, you know, sports medicine, you know, if you're willing to hold excellence up. And I think that's one of the, the ways where endurance sports and where, CrossFit, I think that's where they go astray. You always think like, there's lots of CrossFit that I look at, and I'm like, man, that's excellent. And then I look mm-hmm. at other stuff, and do the same thing with Olympic lifting. Yeah. Uh, and you know, when you lose sight of that, I think that's that's what where you're kind of missing the forest for the trees. That's that's something that I think is uh, is is an important distinction. Yeah, definitely, big time. Uh, in terms of your top three to five books, what would you say? Oh. Uh, we would have to distinguish more like uh, what, what the topic was most likely. Uh, Clayton Christensen's How Will You Measure Your Life, The Innovator's Dilemma are both fantastic. Robert Piercig's Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance, uh, <clears throat> those from, a, from more of a philosophy standpoint, The Happiness Hypothesis, as I mentioned before. From a, from a training perspective, Dr. Stone's text, uh, Principles of Practice of Resistance Training, uh, very, very heavy, very dense resource. Uh, man, there's, uh, this, there's, this, there's a lot of good books boy. out there. There you are, yeah. <laughs> uh, have you seen this one lately? I, I was telling John Colley about this one, the one from Duncan McDougall and uh, Dibby Sale. I really like that Yeah, that was, uh, that was our physiology text for Youth Callum Program. Like, I really like of, that. I think it's a beautiful book. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's you know, yeah, uh, yeah, I, I spent a lot of time with that book and, uh, last year that was uh it, and it really is it's a fantastic resource here sometimes we can all get buried in the physiology and uh or, or mechanics like the study of those things but those things really are integral you know elon musk has first principles is really like that's how tesla and uh spacex has been successful and in some ways obviously there's there's complexity to that but uh yeah that's one of the things that he talks about in terms of constructing and and, and being able to create new things when they go back to first principles they found uh inefficiency in battery design and that's allowed them to make a battery better and cheaper because they went back to first principles and tracked it back so that points us back towards you know towards you know our our roots and and physiology and biomechanics for our field brilliant brilliant so that's that's some uh, great uh, references there a final thing dan a new kind of question i'm asking everyone is uh so we've booked a restaurant there's there's yourself and there's four other spots or five other spots there's five people you can bring to dinner who 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 are the five people you bring to dinner both dead or alive if you had your choice I'm, I'm going to be so biased here because I'm so, like, so uh, positive about the people. Dan Paff, for one, like, I've only uh, I've been fortunate to meet and spend some time with Dan in person, but just would always, uh, Dr. Jeremy Shepard, uh, Dr. Sophia Nymphius, uh, Dr. Dan Baker. How many people is that? Where am I at? <laughs> uh, Landon Evans. Uh, if, we, if, 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 if we go over five, it's okay. We'll make room. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Landon Evans, and I would say, you know, my immediate, my immediate guys, you know, Nate Brokerson, Patrick Ward, Charlie Weingroff, uh, Walter Norton, th- those those guys, I would, uh, yeah, I, I, I don't know, those are my guys, you know? 
So your your, your wife doesn't get a look in. <laughs> not, not, yeah, not at this dinner. We'll have our own dinner. That'll be. <laughs> I might joke I'm only kidding with you. That that's yeah. that's everything I got for you today. Is there is there any parting words or anything we didn't touch on that you'd you'd like to touch on and um and also where can people find out more about you or get in touch with you? Oh, currently, uh, currently I wouldn't worry too much about me. I'm very definitely in that academic mindset. So, uh, but uh, uh, I'm sorry. Go go ahead again with the the, the remainder of that. So just in terms of uh, is, is the um, where can people find out more about you and you know you're saying you've you've got you're currently involved more so with the academia but if there's anything we didn't touch on is there anything you want to touch on? No, I I I, I think that that we've, we've done a pretty good job of, uh, yeah. of capturing. I always I always tell people like you know people talk to you about what they think is important and I think that you know I can definitely come out as a little bit more spread out in terms of my focus but you know like there's. I, I think it just points to there being a lot to consider, you know, like currently I think a misconception is in sports specialization is one of those things, you know, people, people in this day and age, like athletes have really never competed at a higher level. Like in some ways, yeah. like I think that, you know, kind of the performance enhancing drug paradigm, like that's obviously influenced performance, but at the same time, like people are, but are, are, are competing at a very, very high level. Uh, probably from a cross-section standpoint at the highest it has ever been. But there's a tremendous cost to that process. And when you apply uh, rigid frameworks like sports specialization with high constraints, uh, it improves your, you know, your predictability in terms of your outcomes. But again, there's a cost to that because it sacrifices very variability and uh, adaptability. So sports specialization, again, being a perfect example, you get small effects from a large intervention and from that framework where in a play-based environment, you want you have essentially a, a small interaction, so they play a sport, and you get large effects because they have to be able to within a within the game. So there's a guy with USA Volleyball that says, "Let the game teach the game," and that's something that is really important. So for us, from a movement perspective, that should influence things. From a, a, a a periodization perspective that should influence us. It's like you have to allow everything to evolve and co-evolve co uh, in, a, in a way that's appropriate for what someone's uh, needs are, as well as for what their current what's what should currently be restricted. Like uh, so, for in baseball or volleyball, for instance, you can increase the number of swings or pitches that they're throwing, and you're going to get an improved performance effect. But there's an increased cost, and that's something that can actually shorten. <clears throat> can shorten their ability to develop mm. in the long term because of uh, bone, muscle, ligament changes, soft tissue, soft tissue damage. That's a, that's a very, <clears throat> very interesting point. Yeah, good point. Yeah. Uh, that's it, Dan. That's that. That's that's all I got for you today. Uh, just in terms of contact and where people can find you on Facebook, Twitter, is there an email or a website or? Yeah, Facebook and Twitter. I'd say Twitter primarily right now is uh, Entheos Athletic is. Uh, is my Twitter handle. Uh, outside of that, yeah, there's not really too many other routes of connecting with me. Great stuff, <clears throat> great stuff. Well, I'll, I'll make sure to put all that stuff in the show notes. So, guys, what a great episode with Daniel Martinez. Uh, as always, keep sharing the podcast around and keep showing your support. Try to do some reviews on iTunes. It really bumps us up in the ratings. And uh, for now, guys, I'll talk to you soon. Take care and stay strong. Mm-hmm.